This is Tech Talk with your host, Tom DiOria. Tom will spend the next hour making your life with technology a little easier with explanations of the different aspects of today's technology and how it can benefit your home, small office, or enterprise. Now here's your host, Tom DiOria. Welcome to IMI Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's the third Sunday of October. It's October 18th, 2015. We're on at 6 p.m. in the New York listening area and 3 p.m. in Arizona. And today we're live from our New York offices, and we're going to be discussing robotics and the myths of autonomy with our guest, Dr. David Mindell. I'm Tom Diori. I'm the CEO of Information Methods Incorporated, and together with our weekly guest, our show will help our listeners, whether a business or home technology user, make better use of all aspects of technology. Just in case you're a first-time listener, in our first segment, Tech Talk provides you the review of last week's most significant events in technology. We start with our increased coverage of New York's technology scene, and we follow this with our industry-wide report, which could contain information on conferences, announcements by vendors, new releases of software or equipment, or new contract opportunities. One of our guests followed us in many aspects of business and industry, and if you wish us to consider a topic for a future show, you can email your suggestions to techtalk, that's T-E-C-H, T-A-L-K, and IMI-US.com, we'll get back to you pretty quickly. Anytime after our show introduction, please give us a call or send an email message with questions on today's topic or anything else we might be able to help you with. You can call 277-KFNX, that's 277-5369. And if you're outside the 602 listening area, call us toll-free at 1-866-536-1100. You can send us an email question uh, throughout the show. Uh, you can do that at techtalk at imi-us.com, and we monitor that throughout the show. If we don't get your questions on today's show, we'll definitely send you an answer and uh, try and get you on next week. And we're also being simulcast on the web. So if you can't get to your radio and you want to listen to us live, go to KFNX's website, which is 1100kfnx.com. So please call in any time during the show, and uh, we'll try and get you on as quickly as possible. For a segment so we can review its increased coverage of technology events in New York City and around the world, it's compiled by Dan Dioria, Dave Brandon, and Jose Batista. Okay, let's see. Cranes tells us that Vanier Media, one of the city's fastest-growing companies, is opening its first overseas office. Executives at the social media marketing agency said that it is hunting for office space in London for a European headquarters that will open next year. The move is part of a rapid growth of the company that CEO Gary Vernerchuk co-founded in 2009. Last week, Vanner Media announced that it will be leaving its current home on Park Avenue South for a new headquarters in Hudson Yards. The company, which employs more than 500 people, about 440 in New York, will be taking 88,000 square feet uh, at 10 Hudson Yards. The Far West Side development is scheduled to open early next year. Vanier Media also has offices in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. The London offices should be open next summer and will house about 10 employees. The Post tells us that Google is the talk of Wall Street, literally. The Silicon Valley behemoth has made an investment in Symphony, a bank-backed chat and data service that poised to rival $24,000 a year Bloomberg terminal that has dominated the finance industry for decades. The investment values the company at $650 million, according to the Wall Street Journal. 
Symphony, which is led by CEO David Curl, has been backed by 15 financial companies, including Goldman Sachs and BlackRock. Thomson Reuters and Dow Jones also reportedly invested in the company. The company uses state-of-the-art encryption for instant messaging and chat and has been dinged by regulators and Senator Elizabeth Warren for its secretive nature. Last month, the company got the okay from the New York Department of Financial Services after it agreed to store some of its clients' chats in external databases. Rapid Network's network tells us that considering its apparent popularity among travelers, JetBlue's push to offer free 20 megabit per second Wi-Fi to passengers is certainly a smart move. The services will be available from 2016. JetBlue's differentiated approach to providing high-speed Internet at no additional cost with a variety of entertainment choices and the ability to stream video is con- consistent with the airline's founding mission of bringing humanity back to air travel. The New York-based airline said Wednesday it's just completed installation of a free Wi-Fi service known as FlyFi on its fleet of about 150 Airbus A320s and A321 aircrafts. The satellite Wi-Fi system has already been installed in numerous JetBlue aircrafts. JetBlue Vice President of Brand and Product Development, Jamie Perry, said that by offering free and fast wireless Internet service on board, the company wants to further prove that there is a business-wise manner in which airlines can provide entertainment options without additional costs. The first FlyFi equipped E-190 recently took flight. The FlyFi service will permit flyers to watch videos from Hulu and Netflix in addition to web browsing. Passengers, however, may opt to pay $9 for its FlyFi Plus service, allowing them to download huge files or use a VPN. Well, I think uh, that's probably a lot cheaper than uh, GoGo, which is uh, the other alternative uh, right now out there that airlines like Delta and American Airlines use. Um, So I have to see where that goes, but obviously free is good. Bloomberg Business tells us that Volkswagen, I'm sure you've been reading about this, AG will embark on one of the biggest recalls in European automotive history. Their recall affects 8.5 8.5 million vehicles after German authorities threw out the carmaker's proposal for voluntary repairs. The carmaker admitted to designing software so that 482,000 of its diesel cars in the United States would turn on full pollution controls only when undergoing laboratory emission tests, not on the road. Since the deception has been known to be far broader, affecting about 11 million cars worldwide, the fellow Federal Motor Transportation Authority, or KBA, I don't know how you get KBA out of Federal Motor Transportation Authority, demanded a recall of 2.4 million cars in Germany after reviewing proposals Volkswagen filed to fix cars that had been fitted with software designed to cheat on pollution tests. The mandatory recall is the basis for callbacks throughout Europe, where diesel accounts for more than half of the market. The 8.5 million affected cars represent slightly less than one-third of Volkswagen's auto deliveries in their region from 2009 through August, based on sales figures the company published for five divisions involved. The recall is also Germany's biggest since its current rules took effect in 1997, 
More than the record 1.9 billion cars the entire auto industry brought back in under repair programs last year, according to the data from the Center for Automotive Management. Volkswagen must share technical details of its fix with authorities by mid-November, and the recall will begin in January. The KBA will test vehicles to ensure the repairs were done successfully. Obviously, that acronym is from the German words, meaning uh, Federal Motor Transportation Authority. Finally, before we go to our break and our guest, uh, PC World tells us that being able to copy, modify, and share images, files, on the Internet is something uh, we take for granted now, but standards body in charge of JPEG is looking uh, to change that for several months. The JPEG committee, I bet you didn't know there was a JPEG committee, has been considering a digital rights management DRM scheme for its widely popular image format. While a DRM extension already exists with JPEG 2000, version used for medical imaging and other professional cases, the committee is now thinking of adding DRM more broadly. So uh, we're going to follow this and see whether or not it's going to have any effect on you, whether or not it's going to protect you better or not. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to get to our guest, uh, Dr. David Mindell. We're going to talk to you about robotics in the midst of autonomy. It's uh, October 18, 2015. I'm Tom DiOrio. This is IMI's Tech Talk, and we're on KFNX AM 1100. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Diori. It's the 18th of October, 2015. And as I promised you before the break, today we're going to talk to you about robotics and the myths of autonomy with our guest, David Mindell, who is an expert in the field of robotics, regularly presents at industrial and research venues such as Lufthansa, Apple, Google, FedEx, NASA, the United States Air Force, and the Explorers Club. David has 25 years of experience as an engineer in the field of undersea robotic exploration and as a veteran of more than 30 oceanographic expeditions. He is also founder of Humanix Corporation, which launched in fall of 2015. Humanix pioneers a new vision of robotics with the goal of automating people into make situated autonomy, which we'll find out what that means, where robots work with human environments and create value. David, thanks thanks for taking uh, time to be with us. This is uh, an exciting topic that we're glad to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's start at the beginning. Before I ask you how you got involved in this, why don't you tell our listeners, how do you define robotics? What is the, What does that mean today? Well, I, I usually generally talk about robotics and autonomous systems because, you know, uh, people often think of a robot as sort of like from, you know, uh, science fiction movies as a kind of mechanized human-type looking thing. Um, Certainly there are robots out there that do that, but, you know, spacecraft that fly to Mars are also robots, and uh, a lot of aspects of your daily life might be sort of like robotics, like dishwasher is sort of a robot for washing dishes, 
and uh, even an airliner is kind of a robot that the pilot sits in these days. So I have a pretty broad, expansive notion of robotics, and generally the idea of autonomy is what links them together, something that's able to take sensor information about the world and, and transform that data into action in the world. What's your background? How does one get into this field? Uh, well, I studied electrical engineering as an undergrad and um, started working building electronics and, and other kinds of systems, sonars for undersea robots. And I started noticing that the way that the robots were affecting the work that we were doing was not what we expected. They weren't always cheaper and they weren't always safer. That was the kind of traditional model but they kind of transformed the, the way we did the work. And in the undersea world, we're able to transport us to the deep ocean in ways we couldn't be otherwise. And then I came back to MIT and did my PhD and been a professor there for the last 20 years, studying the way that people interact with different kinds of automatic systems. This uh, field obviously has grown since you've been involved, so I guess you grew up with it, basically. Was there robotics? 20 years ago when you got into this? Robotics has sort of been around for a long time. I mean, actually, the last book I wrote was about the lunar landings, and that was in 1969 to 1972. And in, in those landings, there were many of the early fly-by-wire features that we now see on airliners and other even in automobiles, and there was a computer controlling the system and a lot of the characteristics of today's autonomous systems. We also landed a robot spacecraft on the moon before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. We've been sending robot spacecraft off into, the, into space for a long time, and there were even early robot weapons in World War II and even as early as World War I. So, um, again, I have a pretty broad expanse of definition of robots. It's not just a kind of humanoid person-like machine that maybe helps you clean your house, um, but lots of different kinds of systems that exist that exhibit different kinds of autonomy. In the intro uh, to the show, we, we talked about or mentioned the myths of autonomy. I mean, you mentioned one, I guess, that uh, makes makes things safer, but not necessarily. I mean, what are the myths? What are what do people in, in your field and and the public in general think that uh, robots are when, in fact, they're not? Well, I think the biggest one is that somehow we're inevitably moving toward a world where robots are completely autonomous and act on their own with no human input. Um, that's a kind of goal of a lot of designers in research labs and in places like MIT where I work. But what I do in the book is look at places where people actually use robots in the world, and this has been going on for several decades in the deep ocean and outer space and in, in aviation and in warfare. And almost always the robots that end up being the most useful end up having human interventions kind of added in sometimes at the last moment so that the robots are very responsive to human needs and to human direction. And I sort of argue that we should be thinking about and designing robots that do that from the first rather than having to gerrymander them later. And that the highest form of technology is actually not full autonomy, but is a kind of human-robotic collaboration that's trusted and transparent and reliable and where the robot does exactly what the person wants it to do you know, at all, all the time, using different kinds of automation. Are there robots today that, I don't know how to phrase the question, that don't need human intervention, but 
they all have to be programmed by a human and the, the human adapts to what they do. I mean, even if you're flying a drone, which is basically a robot, it still requires control. I mean, are there any truly autonomous uh, robotic devices? There really aren't because, I mean, full autonomy is, a, again, it's a kind of a myth and it's a kind of a, a, a unachievable ideal because you can always think of a wrapper of human control that either sends the robot out into the world or receives the data that it sends back or, as you mentioned, people are programming the robot, they're designing it, and, you know, indeed the robots will respond to their environment, but they do so in ways that the people have instructed them to do beforehand. Let's talk about, I want to talk about the autonomous car at some point, but uh, i don't want to start that discussion because we only have a couple of minutes left in this in this segment. So even though there's the myth about the autonomous robot, and I think we just discussed that you still need still need human human interaction. How do you? And you also mentioned that your colleagues, some of your colleagues, are are off trying to make these truly artificial intelligent robots that think will eventually think for themselves i mean if you if you watch tv and see those uh, watson commercials they're sort of saying that watch the ibm computer watson is thinking for itself is there room for both sides of that argument i think the story is a little bit different when human lives are at stake that's again why i'm interested in the question of robotics and autonomy more than in ai per se um, you know, if you're processing credit card transactions or if you're suggesting, you know, possible diagnoses to a doctor, there's a kind of statistical inference that's acceptable. But when you're landing an airliner full of 250 people, you can't get the problem 80% right. You really have to get it completely right all the time. And so when human lives are at stake, the requirements and the stakes go up a great deal, and a lot of these kind of interesting things become a lot more difficult. You really have to do it exactly right every time, and that's going to be true of whatever software is in your car. Hold that thought. I'd like to talk about uh, these autonomous cars that some uh, manufacturers are touting. Uh, this is Tom DiOrio. We're on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's the 18th of October, 2015. And we're talking to Dr. David Mendel about robotics and the myths of autonomy. This is a half-hour break. You're going to get the national news, so please stay tuned. And we're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiOria, and today's show is discussing robotics and the myths of autonomy. And our guest is Dr. David Mendel. And uh, before the break, uh, David was telling us that um, an autonomous car is a nice idea, but since there are humans in, it's not the 200 humans on an airliner, but it's still some number of humans in the car. Uh, I've always been a little hesitant about uh, having this car drive itself with four people in it with their seats turned to each other in the middle talking to each other while this car is doing its own thing. Um, is that going to be is that the wave of the future? I mean I don't think that full autonomy in that way is the wave of the future, you know, for people to sleep or turn their backs or read a book is 
really shown to be not the way that makes these systems robust and safe and reliable. I think there's a very interesting, exciting future for automobiles where we have new kinds of sensors and new kinds of computers and radars and lots of other things, new kinds of display interfaces that help us drive, that reduce the workload, that reduce some of the boredom, that maybe even allow you enough distraction that you can text or make a phone call, um, but really still keep you involved in the task because the automation is always going to be partial and imperfect and subject to failures no matter how infrequent they are, and the person's going to be to need to be in a position to work with the robot. Um, another way to think about it is give me all that technology, but let technology expand my experience of the world as I drive rather than push me back into a cocoon separated from the world. That's proven to be unsafe. Going back to the example of the airliner, are there cases where the pilots let the plane completely fly itself from takeoff to landing, or are they always involved in what's going on up there? Um, you know, know, there have been cases of that. Uh, airplanes are perfectly capable of that in many cases. Uh, many modern airliners have auto land features where they can land with the pilot's hands off, but there's a few things. I have a chapter on this in the book that are interesting. First of all, the auto land features are not very often used, maybe 2 to 3% of the landings, um, and even those landings are mostly done to keep the pilots current in how to use the auto land. Um, pilots tend to like to have their hands on the controls when they're landing for a variety of reasons. The auto land can be kind of brittle. It doesn't work in high winds doesn't work in high turbulence. It requires a lot of infrastructure in the airline and in the training and in the uh, actual airport that it's landing to. There's some real interesting innovation in the airline world as far as what are called heads-up displays that kind of use a lot of that similar computing power but keep the pilot's hands on the stick and give them really great, you know, almost video game-like feedback on how they're landing and you can actually go back and show that a number of the recent airline accidents might have been prevented if the air, air, if the uh, pilots were using those kind of displays. You know, in general, an airliner still requires two certified pilots, even if it's flying in an automated mode. And that's a $150 million machine with two very highly trained people and very highly certified software. And we still require people there to keep an eye on it when human lives are at stake. I don't know how we're going to imagine that we're going to do a thousand times better with a $30,000 car that drives around through the mud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, humans are error-prone. i got to believe uh, robots are, are error-prone as well, so maybe when you combine the two, you can get close to 100%. Yeah, that's, there's a good analogy there in that, you know, after the uh, Deep Blue versus Kasparov chess game, where a, com a computer beat the world chess champion for a while, uh, for the first time. Uh, now the interesting frontier in chess is human teams plus robots uh, or plus computers are are better than either humans or computers alone in chess. And I think that's going to be true in driving as well. That's, that's a good analogy. I happen to be at that. Uh, that was an ACM conference where they did that. I think. Mm -hmm. um, so your book. Our Robots, Ourselves, is that your current book? Yes, that just came out the other day. You explore, and I'll ask you uh, when we're done with this with this question how our listeners can get it, um, robotics in extreme environments, including Mars, 
We can, let's let's talk about that first, and then we can talk about some of the other extreme environments like deep sea and high atmosphere and stuff. But um, tell us a little bit about that. Are, are you involved in the Mars rover? Uh, actually, I haven't been involved in the Mars rovers, but um, there's uh, a lot of good research on how the scientists use the Mars rovers, and you know. The one thing the Mars rovers weren't doing was doing any science. Um, they're more almost like remote telescopes in a way. They're directed from the ground. The scientists and the engineers tell them where to go. They may use some autonomous features to, you know, automatically calculate the way around a rock or something. Um, but for the most part, the people are controlling the robots as they move across the Martian landscape. Now, they're doing that through what is often on average, a 20-minute time delay from the time you tell the robot to do something to the time it does something, um, and then it returns the data. And that seems impossibly difficult, you know, agonizingly slow. But when you actually talk to the scientists who've worked with those robots for more than a decade in some cases, um, they feel very present in the Martian landscape. And the time delay and the distance um, don't really impede them feeling like they know the landscape that they're adventuring through. I guess if you build that 20-minute delay into what you're doing, it it would sort of just fold in, no? Because even though it is in reality 20 minutes after the command is issued, if you're at that point in time, I don't know how to explain it, but if you're at that point in time, you just keep going. It's like, you know, daylight savings time or or time zones, right? It's they end up having a kind of interaction cycle with the robot about once per day. And, you know, if you're doing science where the goal is to be thoughtful and deliberate about how you experience the world, you know, slowing down is a good thing. Um, and more than that, they're studying geology, which on Mars probably hasn't changed for hundreds of millions of years in many cases. So... You know, there's not that much need to be in a hurry. There's not that much need to interact in real time. The robots are, sorry, the rocks are still going to be there in 20 minutes. Um, and, you know, what they end up doing really is exploring in the data. And the data comes down to Earth and it's processed into either images or 3D models or, models or other kinds of maps. And the scientists become very familiar in those data landscapes. And I guess uh, geology is not a too much of a dynamic uh, science. Tell us about some of the other uh, extreme environments that uh, you cover in your book and what we've learned from some of them. Well, I worked in the very deep ocean um, for many years. I worked with Bob Ballard, and I joined his group right after they found the Titanic, and we learned a lot about operating in the deep ocean. I talk about aviation. We've mentioned a little bit in this hour. Um, and I talk about warfare, and particularly the Predator drone. And, you know, this is a People call it a drone, and it is a kind of automated, unmanned aircraft, but it actually takes more than 150 people to operate one of the Predators. It's a very human-involved system, so much so that the Air Force actually has banned the term unmanned. Yet you still get these operators sitting in trailers in Las Vegas and other places, you know, um, operating military missions and in some cases shooting and killing on the other side of the planet. And, you know, that's a very new experience of warfare, which has real implications. Um, in fact, I argue in the book 
based on interviews with many of these drone operators, that in a lot of times they feel more intimate with the combat that they're participating in, even though their bodies are not physically at risk on the battlefield. That's a, that's very interesting. I would I wouldn't have uh, thought that. We have to take a break. We're talking to Dr. David Mindell about robotics in the midst of autonomy. Um, we're going to come back. We've got a lot more questions, uh, both about his book and his research and knowledge of, of robotics in general. I'm Tom DiOria. This is Sunday, October 18th, 2015. We're on KFNX AM 1100 on IMI's Tech Talk. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Diori. It's the 18th of October, 2015. Today's show is covering robotics in the midst of autonomy with our guest, Dr. David Mindell. And, uh, David, we've been talking about your book. Uh, give us the title again, and how can our listeners get a copy of it? It's called Our Robots Ourselves, Robotics and the Myths of Autonomy, and it's available on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com and pretty much in any bookstore this week. Great. Good luck with it. Thank you. We talked about uh, the moon mission, moon landings, at the beginning of the show. Is there a relevance to what's going on today? Any of that in use 30 years later? There's a lot of relevance. When the engineers first got the assignment to build the computer for the moon, they figured it would have two buttons, take me to moon and take me home, much like people are imagining some kinds of autonomous cars today. And by the time they actually landed on the moon seven years later, they had engineered a system that was deeply collaborative with the human astronauts and really supported them and did a lot of things very automated, but also allowed the people control over the system. And needless to say, all six attempts at landing on the moon succeeded in a very challenging environment. So um, the irony there was that the fancy computers and brand-new software and all this great stuff was used not to automate the person out of the loop, but to automate the person in the loop. That's pretty interesting. I and mean, that basically goes back to the other conversations we were having about pilots and the like of, you know, they use the robotics as a tool, not as uh, something that they're dependent on solely. Exactly. I guess going back to, to what you were saying uh, about the military, I'd like to just pursue that a little bit more. Are the drones the major, the only robotic technology that's in use today in the military, or are there other applications? Oh, there are many, many different kinds of these things. I mean, if you think about even a guided missile, which is really a term from the 40s and the 50s, is a kind of a robotic weapon, right? Um, and a smart bomb that became prominent for the in the first Gulf War um, is a is a kind of a robotic weapon. But in those cases, all the technology is used not to let the thing decide where to go on its own. It's 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 designed to make the thing go where the person tells it to go. That's a very difficult problem, requires very sophisticated technology. But what we call a smart bomb is really a bomb that actually follows human direction. We started off by talking about autonomy also in relationship to this and and I'd like to last couple of minutes we have just, just going back to that with regard to this entire entire subject. And if we can just maybe, I don't want to call it a recap, but um, 
if we're talking about autonomy, whether it's the military, used by the, the general public, major corporations, I guess I asked you this question before, but uh, just in terms of what we've been discussing, um, are there any tasks that today is strictly a robotic? I mean, making of cars, they have things that look like robots putting together the cars. I mean, they're pretty self-sufficient, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, there are many robots in factories that do repetitive tasks extremely well, um, and they do those tasks with increasing kind of sensitivity to their environment. Um, and, you know, but and you add up a lot of those, and they but they don't still make a whole car. There's still a lot of human roles in there, and the humans set up the system, and they design it to do the uh, integrated um, task to create the car, um, but also the robots in, in and of themselves, a, a, a factory with no people in it doesn't really learn very well. Um, it does the same thing over and over again. People are very good at improving the systems, and even in some factories, you're seeing automobile companies trying to put people back into the tasks at some places because the people do a better job of improving the manufacturing process. Continuous improvement is a big feature of modern manufacturing. We were talking before about military drones. You mentioned something that sounded like it was a, uh, an ethical quandary. Could you expand on that a little bit, what your thoughts are with regard to using drones as a weapon? Well, again, you know, I think that the ethical quandary, I don't think it's that much of an ethical quandary. Right now, the military's policy, and I think it's the right one, is that people should be involved in and always be uh, in control of when weapons are actually released and directed, and that there are, are not sort of autonomous drone robot weapons that make decisions to kill on their own. I think the current policy is an appropriate one, and we should stick with that. Um, there's a, a lot of professional and social quandaries around, are you a real warrior if you make those decisions from 3,000 miles away rather than flying at 50,000 feet above the battlefield? Um, and those are things that the Air Force and other aspects of the military are kind of having to work their way through. Do you get a medal if you are a drone pilot? Well, drone pilots will tell you they see some pretty unpleasant things and they're involved in some, you know, difficult combat experiences, but dif difficult in a different way from traditional combat experiences. You know, it's like the Civil War general being in the back of the battlefield. I mean, not mm -hmm. quite the same distance, but uh, same concept, do the planning and then sit back. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> we've got a couple of minutes left, and, and um, can you, there are two things I want to cover, so I'll let you pick which one. One is your your experience with uh, deep sea use of of uh, robotics, since you really have a, an extensive background there, or whether or not there are any consequences, good or bad, from the use of robotics that you've learned about in the many years that you've been doing this. Well, to pick up the latter question, I think the consequences are what interests me always is not is it manual or is it automatic or is it manned or is it unmanned, but rather where are the people, who are the people, what are they doing, and when are they doing it? And if you can answer those questions, you often find that things that look like autonomous robots actually have a great deal of human involvement. It may have been a few years before when the code was written. It may be 3,000 miles away. It may be 10 minutes before in 
the case of a Mars rover, but there's almost always people somewhere if you're willing to look for them. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Tell us, again, the title of your book and where they can get it, and if our listeners want to follow up with you, what's the best way for them to do that? So the title of the book is Our Robots, Ourselves, Robotics, and the Myths of Autonomy. It's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and any other bookstore today. If they want to follow up on me, they should probably, at this point, they can go to davidmindell.com or link to humatics.com, which is the company that I'm starting to uh, develop some of these ideas into further technologies. Just spend uh, 30 seconds and tell us about your company. Humatics, it's the first four letters of human and the last four letters of robotics, and it's designed to put humans first in our interactions with robotic systems, but to build robotic systems that expand human abilities and expand human experiences of the world while automating people in and not automating people out. Great. Thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's really an interesting uh, subject for us. Thank you. I want to Happy thank Terry Ruggiero, IMI's president, Dave Brandon, Dan Diori, and Jose Batista for our Week in Review. Taylor Redden's our producer. Tess Enshaw is our associate producer. And Matt Campagny is our executive producer. And without Robert Baumbach and the KFNX AM 1100 production department, you wouldn't have heard a word we said. Thanks again for listening. Please don't forget to tune in to Tech Talk next week at 6 p.m. in New York on KFNX AM 1100. And remember to send us your suggestions for future shows or ask us questions by sending an email to techtalk, that's T-E-C-H-T-A-L-K, at imi-us.com. Have a great week, and thanks again for listening. <laughs>